Hello, and welcome to AJC Passport, brought to you by AJC, the diplomatic arm of the Jewish community. Each week, we'll chat with experts from around the world to help you better understand the week's headlines and what they all mean for Israel and the Jewish people. I'm your host, Sefi Kogan. This week, one of the most popular magazines among the young and woke demographic, Teen Vogue, published a piece linking police brutality in the United States to Israel. In recent years, the magazine has shifted its journalistic focus from makeup tips and dating stories to discussing the pressing issues of the day through a feminist lens. But how does that angle lead them to publish such unfounded criticism of Israel? Our guest this week has devoted a lot of time to analyzing how Israel is treated in feminist circles, with bylines on just this issue. In The New York Times, The Daily Beast, and The Forward, former Bustle editor and current Yale Law student Emily Shire joins us now from Washington. Emily, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, it's my pleasure. Okay, so I I, want to start right off the bat. What is the deal with Teen Vogue. Aren't they just like 17 or, I don't know, is is, is there a, a glamour for girls? This is not a serious publication, is it? You know what, they're really changing um, their brand. And brand even makes it sound good, too superficial. But I think there's actually a poor change in what they're hoping to deliver to their readers, which is incredibly admirable. I personally uh, noticed that change during the 2016 election, and certainly afterwards, that they were trying to make it so that they weren't good fashion and dating advice alone. Uh, And I say that as someone who also enjoys reading a lot of good fashion and dating (laughs) advice. They were definitely moving into the more political realm. Uh, And I thought that was great, because I think it's a huge disservice to assume that young women, let's say ages 15 to teen bogus teen, but probably goes up to 25, even 30, that their readership doesn't care about politics or can't care about fashion, dating, and politics all at once. Uh, and, I, and I very much admire them for taking, uh, for acknowledging that and taking a more serious turn. I think that's such a good point also that we're seeing more and more people at younger and younger ages get actively involved in politics. Even, you know, you mentioned age 15, say, uh, which in fact is the age of a lot of the students from Parkland who have become such uh, powerful advocates, even though they are still three years away from even being able to cast a vote, they're getting engaged in the political process. So I think that's a tremendous point. Can you give us any examples of, uh, of things that Teen Vogue has covered that you felt were, you know, really powerful? Uh, journalistic moments? You know, they really have been hard on a lot of, and I say hard in a good way, on following the Trump administration. I think they've made it a regular part of their coverage. Um, And in regards to the article that we're going to talk about, uh, it's part of a regular column that's really about social activism. Uh, And the fact that Chief Vogue is committed to devoting so much space to social activism, I think, in general, is completely admirable and also very much in the Times. Look, I I will say, and I say this as someone who came from a millennial-focused female publication, it's in your interest, too, from a business standpoint, because you see that there is a sea change, that I think people are more interested and more engaged in caring about these political, social issues, and it hurts your company, it hurts your your cred, not, not to devote more space, more time to discussing these topics. And you queued it up, so let me ask you. So now they have turned their critical... I, their, their woke reporting on Israel. What exactly happened? Well, um, 
Keith Vogue has a column called Do Better. Uh, I believe the author is, uh, and I must admit I have not read Lincoln Anthony Blaze's work before this article. It came across my feed uh, because I think people were surprised. The article is called How Policing in the U.S. and Security in Israel are Connected. And I was a little surprised that it was coming from Keith Vogue, more because I had more respect for Keith Vogue objectivity and, and legitimacy in, in discussing issues before reading this, but I can't say that the headline or the content surprised me in general because it reflects certain trends in what we consider woke, far-left activism uh, that, that I've been seeing for, for months, if not years, in making sweeping uh, generalizations, lacking you know, facts and any sense of nuance about certain U.S. and Israeli policies. You call it a sweeping generalization, but I'm curious, can you dive a little bit deeper into, you know, why is it wrong, right? They're, they're making this claim that American police forces, which have kind of become a, you know, I, I hesitate to say a, an enemy of, of the left, but certainly there's a lot of left-wing advocacy focused on trying to push for reforms in policing in this country. And they're making the argument that many of the things that they would like them to reform and to not do as much are actually learned from exchanges with Israeli police forces. Is there truth to that? I found the article, you know, so bias would be a charitable way to describe it. Bias to the point of disingenuous would be a charitable way to describe it, to flat out misleading and false in specific sections. Um, I mean, there are a number of points where I thought it was blatant misrepresentation or inaccuracy. Going through the article itself, I found it very disturbing uh, how um, how many half-truths there were. So one was that uh, the author brushes off very fast Nikki Haley's claim that there's anti-Israel bias. And you can certainly disagree with Nikki Haley on a thousand issues, but the fact of the matter is, I think few people who are who are actually informed on the issue would disagree that there is an anti-Israel bias at the UN. Uh, I was looking up the statistics this morning, and from 2012 to 2015, 86% of all uh, resolutions in the General Assembly criticizing specific countries were against Israel, which means against Israel alone, it far outweighed resolutions against Iran, North Korea, Syria combined. So the fact that the article doesn't actually acknowledge that was disturbing to me. Um, I found the discussion of the U.S. funding of certain Israeli activities uh, deeply misguided and especially frustrating because uh, the author links to an article that discusses how integral this was to the Obama administration, how involved Susan Rice was, and I think it's uncomfortable for the author maybe to its point to acknowledge that popular, well-respected Democratic leaders supported working with Israel and supported building a healthy relationship because it complicates um, his point to acknowledge that there are people we respect and revered as leaders who see good in this. Um, but, but even more importantly, he glossed over the fact that this funding deal that he was linking to actually specified that a huge portion of the financing needed to be spent on, on U.S. Uh, US weapons. So it was actually beneficial to the U.S. And there was a you know, core financial aspect to it that benefited our country. It wasn't just the U.S. You know, pumping up Israeli policies as he painted it. Um, and I guess one more thing to add, because there are really so many things I found disingenuous of the article, but the lack of a proper discussion about U.S.-Israeli funding, which is a complicated 
uh, topic, uh, for sure, is speaks to my concern that he brushed over any sort of reasons about why the U.S. and Israel might have a good relationship. He even said, um, regardless of the cause, and then moved forward to criticizing Israel and the U.S. and treating them both as police states. And I think it's actually really important if you're going to peddle conspiracy theories about Israeli uh, Israeli funding, uh, funding towards Israel, that you discuss why the U.S. and Israel has the relationship that it does, uh, and that you go into the history of not only their relationship, but Israel's development, Israel's region, Israel's role as a democracy in its region, Israel's uh, you know, the place that it provides in the Middle East for the LGBTQ community, uh, for women seeking a number of health-related procedures, and just the role it plays on the diplomatic stage. Um, and that really bothered me because what I find in a lot of critiques similar to the arguments made in the Teen Vogue article is nobody wants to go into the history. Nobody wants to go into the nuance uh, and deal with the hard facts of why Israel is the way that it is today, why Israel and the U.S. has the relationship that it has today. Uh, because it's hard, it's complicated, and it doesn't fit easy with you know, a lot of these glossed over sweeping generalization arguments. I think all of that is important. And you didn't even touch on on what stood out the most to me, which was that it's actually ridiculous to compare, as the author does, in fact, conflate in many instances, policing in this country with military actions in Israel. Because, of course, police, you know, keep the peace in civil situations and military is deployed during wartime and in military operations. And there were times when they were trying to compare apples to apples with the U.S. police force and the Israeli police force. But there were also times where they spoke about the Israeli military's policies and and tactics, which actually should be thought of quite differently from the way that uh, that American policing is carried out. Beyond policing, beyond this particular issue, um, you've written extensively in the past about how Israel is often brought up in uh, in feminist spaces and intersectional spaces and often treated uh, really, really wrongly. Can you tell us uh, a little bit about what are the origins of this kind of sense that in order to be properly woke, in order to be truly progressive, you need to oppose Israel? Uh, it, it's incredibly complicated. And to be honest, I don't always have a good reason for why because uh, it shocked me that it's picked up that it is part of being woke to be so critical of Israel, because I think if you went by the actual facts and evidence of the current situation in the Middle East, it's, it's very jarring to be not only hypercritical, uh, disproportionately critical of the one country where you can be openly gay, where you can get a safe abortion uh, in the Middle East, um, and where you see... You see women in thriving leadership roles in multiple countries, but I think it's hard to argue that Israel doesn't have, you know, I'd say, the best the best space for that. Um, and it's very weird to see that if you bring up those points, even you're then accused of, of pinkwashing, uh, of glossing over some really sinister aspect of Israel's human rights violations, or if you bring up the fact that Palestinian women can go to Israel and have affordable, if not free, abortions and get the reproductive care they'd be jailed, if not further harmed for in, in their own region, you're, you're known as a pinkwasher. Um, and it's this really backwards logic. And some of the reasons that I think it picked up uh, are, frankly, the fact that Israel is seen as very white, which is also unfortunate because it does a complete disservice to how uh, diverse the country is or the fact that um, I believe it's now half 
maybe slightly more than half of the people who identify as Jewish in Israel are not actually white. That's right. Um, and so I think it frankly goes back to the fact that a lot of the sweeping generalizations that are a core of the modern intersectionalist movement. And I think there are a lot of problems with sweeping generalizations in the modern intersectionalist movement that have nothing uh, to do with Israel. But a lot of it is a lot of hostility towards people who appear white. And in many ways, that's very understandable because people who are white or appear white have had a lot of the power and have done a lot of oppressive things uh, for centuries, if, if not longer. But then it becomes very easy to see Israel, this country that people think of as white, who they think of as too closely tied to the U.S., anything that's pro-U.S., I think is also fairly uh, suspect in a lot of intersectionalist circles. And so it becomes easier and easier to, to just keep generalizing and put Israel in a box. But it, but it is. It's weird because you have to do a lot of logical backflips and ignore you know, feminist and LGBTQ plus concerns. Uh, to do that. I think you see that problem arose with the Women's March uh, unwillingness to distance themselves from Louis Farrakhan because the things that he opposed were sometimes similar to the things that he opposed, but he was also you know, opposed to the LGBTQ community and um, opposed to fighting anti-Semitism, was in fact a proponent of anti-Semitism, but it really threw them to be in a position, I think, to be critical of someone who is of color, of someone who identified as a very extreme form of Islam, two groups that fit a little more neatly in the support of the intersectionalist movement. And to me, it just speaks to a larger problem of that there isn't um, a whole lot of intellectualism, that it's very much about purity tests and blind support for different linkages as a few people who lead the movement see fit. Emily, a little over a year ago, you wrote a piece for the New York Times asking if feminism still has room for Zionist women. You were a little grim at the time, I think, about about that prospect. Have you seen anything in the intervening year to give you hope that the movement is is opening up somewhat? Uh, I see moments of hope. I would say I'm still a little a little grim about it. Um, I think I see people having strong discussions uh, about it. There, when I read different columns, you know. Jewish Daily Forward, uh, Fatia Unger Sargon uh, is a wonderful writer, and I think she has a lot of nuance, even though we probably disagree on a number of topics. She recognizes uh, problems, I think, on the far left, which is, I think, more of her of her home. And she, the fact that she can recognize and talk about it and see the problems is very refreshing to me. Um, I feel like a lot to be disheartened about, too, because... I find it disturbing that when a politician even says, well, Israel has a right to exist, so we clearly have to work on Palestinian statehood, and you know, even if they're going on in a way that I probably would disagree with about their you know, oppressive ta- what they consider to be oppressive tactics towards Palestinians that ignore Palestinian leadership's role altogether. Um, but as long as they even acknowledge that Israel has some sort of right to exist, I have seen how people on the left, and not necessarily the the far, far left, like the Bernie Sanders left, will jump down these politicians' throats. Uh, and, and that is disheartening. I'm, I am saddened to see that that, I think, is the reality and becoming maybe less of a fringe left and more of a just left view. And so I don't know what to, what to hope for the future. Uh, I, I wish I could be more optimistic. I'm optimistic when I see good columns and good discussions, which I do think are happening. 
Well, here's hoping that that conversation leads to uh, greater openness moving forward. Uh, Emily, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, it's my pleasure. Under the cover of darkness this past weekend, Israeli army convoys evacuated over 400 Syrian civilians out of the war-torn country. Who were these people that Israel was saving? Reviled by the Assad regime for their work providing medical care to people in the middle of Syria's civil war, the White Helmets have reportedly saved well over 100,000 lives over the past four years of the conflict. Joining us this week to talk about this amazing rescue operation is Lieutenant Colonel Avital Leibovich, director of AJC's Jerusalem office. Before taking up her role at AJC, Avital spent over 20 years in the spokesperson's unit of the Israel Defense Forces. Avital, thank you so much for joining us. Of course. Isn't it crazy that Israel would have anything to do with saving Syrian lives? I mean, Israel and Syria have been at war for literally 70 years. So I think we need to look at the broader context because this is not a political issue, really. At the end of the day, we have been witnessing the murder of 250 Syrians on an average week. And as Jews living in Israel, this was something that obviously touched many people's hearts. And therefore, there were quite a lot of even social and civilian initiatives of people raising money or donating the Syrian people different kind of items for winter, for children, for, uh, for hospitals, for schools. Um, and, and so this is not, does not really come as a surprise to us Israelis living here. Now, uh, in the last couple of weeks, the fighting in southern Syria really intensified because Assad's uh, regime is really trying to take down the last few resistant pockets who are left in the area. And these resistant pockets are actually located very close to the Israeli border. And uh, we in Israel have been witnessing a phenomenon of some kind of refugee camps, uh, temporary refugee camps, that were built very close to the Israeli border. Uh, the people who were staying there, the Syrians who were staying there, obviously thought that since they would be close to Israel, this would give them some kind of immunity, uh, which obviously did not uh, happen. And, um, and Israel tried to intensify uh, accordingly its efforts, humanitarian efforts, um, and it built uh, a certain military unit called Good Neighborhood. And this Good Neighborhood actually did a lot of things in the recent months. And I actually can tell you that just last week, one of the units in the north carried out six special operations in a few areas along the border where humanitarian aid was given to the Syrians, was passed to the Syrians in those tent camps of refugees in the Golan. Uh, 72 tons of food, 70 tents, 9,000 liters of uh, gas, different kinds of medicine and medical equipment, and of course toys and clothes for, for kids were all passed through this unit. And this is just a little indication 
of, I think, the, the pretty much impressive investment that Israel is really doing here. And again, not for any political reason. Uh, you know, official Israel for the last seven years stayed out completely of speaking about uh, the next day in Syria, what will happen tomorrow, who will replace Bashar Assad. Uh, so this is really, really strictly humanitarian. Well, the white helmets have been operating in danger in a war zone for years. Should we take the fact that they are, you know, kind of finally tapping out? Should we take that to mean that the regime, with the assistance of the Russians and the Iranians, is finally about to win the civil war? Well, I, I don't think that uh, we are close, very close to an ending. Um, the white helmets, also known as the Syrian civil defense, is quite a courageous organization that uh, maybe you recall was nominated to uh, even receive the Nobel Peace Prize in 2016. Right, right. And they are actually funded financially by a fund called Mayday Rescue, which is usually sponsored uh, by different Western countries. And what they're doing is really saving lives of people. And, um, and actually, Prime Minister Netanyahu... Uh, explained a few days ago that um, he received um, some kind of a request from President Trump and the Prime Minister of Canada, Trudeau, um, asking uh, from, from Israel to help and take out from Syria these white helmet groups. Um, and uh, Netanyahu, uh, in his speech, said that according to uh, his principles and the fact that this is really humanitarian principles, these are people who saved lives and now are in, in a life and death situation, uh, he approved this uh, very important task. And, um, and it was quite a remarkable and dramatic uh, rescue mission. It was early in the morning, Saturday, a few days ago, and 422 white helmets uh, activists and their families were bused, were mobilized, were bused from Syria into Israel uh, and from Israel into uh, Jordan overnight. Um, it was really, I think, an extraordinary and very humane humanitarian gesture. Um, it, I, I saw the uh, press release or some kind of a thank you letter that the White Helmets actually published after they uh, reached safety, in which they're thanking the various governments who were involved in this operation. And I can also share with you that um, even the European Union recognized the efforts of Israel and Jordan and other elements uh, for this rescue operation. So I think this, in a way... Um, maybe opened a little window to other countries, to other people in the world, to really maybe understand better um, Israeli motives for this kind of uh, very dangerous and dramatic and yet necessary and essential operation. 
Yes, indeed. And the the number two at Canada's embassy in Israel, I saw said, from Canada's perspective, Israel's role was indispensable. There was no way to save these Syrians without Israel's coordination, collaboration, and leadership, which I think just says so much about the sense of cooperation and, and gratitude toward Israel for its role in this operation. But that thank you note that you mentioned that the White Helmets put out, that actually did not mention Israel at all, correct? Correct. It did not mention other countries as well. It said it read governments, other governments, all governments that were involved. So it didn't mention other countries as well, which I'm fine. I, we don't need, you know, the uh, the publicity <laughs> for that. Uh, the, you know, the, the footage was released, and and I think people know exactly what Israel did. But it wasn't all very rosy, because we did see some condemnation, for example, by Russia. Um, Russia uh, issued a statement which uh, actually said the following, that the uh, white helmets, the fact that they were removed from uh, southern western Syria, uh, this actually has one positive thing, which is the white helmets will probably will not be able to use any more chlor- chlorine uh, to uh, fabricate a chemical weapon in a specific area in Syria. So that's what, for example, the Russian embassy uh, in Israel uh, tweeted. And that's just a ridiculous inversion of what's actually happening. Right. And, uh, and of course, the Syrian government uh, reacted uh, by saying that this is a, a terrorist activity of Israel, and actually it's exposing the real nature of this organization. It's, of course, putting in danger the stability of the area, as if the area is, is so stable. Only yesterday, two rockets landed uh, in the Kinneret, in the Sea of Galilee, fired from Syria. So this really, from the Syrian perspective, put uh, in danger the stability uh, in the area. So obviously Israel is not doing this for the comments or anything of that sort. Uh, and, and I'm sure that this, um, these kind of efforts uh, will continue. I'm talking, of course, about the humanitarian efforts, the hospitalization of Syrians, uh, think that until now Israel has hospitalized more than 4,000 Syrians. And um, when, when I see these kind of efforts, then of course I'm very, very proud to be Israeli. And of course, it makes perfect sense that Israel is not doing this for the credit. I do think it's it's interesting, though. I, I've seen some people on Twitter denying Israel's role. For example, there's this woman with one of those bright blue check marks next to her name, Elizabeth Tsurkov, who is a research fellow at the Israeli Forum for Regional Thinking, who tweeted out to her 32,000 plus followers, Israel did not, quote, rescue the white helmets, as reports claim. If Western countries did not step up and agree to receive these people as refugees, they would still be trapped inside Syria, facing detention in Assad regime torture dungeons or bombings by the Assad regime in Russia. Which, to me, you know, that just seems like such a ridiculous semantic play to say, because the final destination of these white helmets is not in Israel, Israel did not rescue these, these white helmets. Yeah, look, the, the, the websites and the, um, the different um, social media uh, platforms are filled with anti-Israeli comments uh, day in and day out. So I'm not too, uh, too uh, excited with these kind of comments, and I don't take them uh, too seriously. Um, look, if, they, if, if, if it would not be for Israel, they would not be able to, to go to Jordan, and then their lives obviously would be in danger. But I think that if we're looking at the bigger picture 
And uh, we are seeing what Israel has been doing for the Syrian people. In the last couple of years, rather than just focusing on, of course, a very dramatic and important operation, but if we're looking one floor higher, then this is some kind of uh, a phenomenon which is repetitive. I mean, we are hospitalizing people from Syria and Israel on a weekly basis. Uh, we are uh, providing in Israel uh, humanitarian aid on a weekly basis. So it's not like a one-of-a-time operation. Uh, and, and this is something which... I think shows the world the humanitarian nature and the Israeli spirit, the real Israeli spirit. So obviously those critics uh, do not want to highlight the spirit because it doesn't align with their beliefs on what is Israel. But we know here exactly, uh, you know, what is being done. And as possible, some footage is being released, but mostly it's not being released because um, we do here in Israel take into consideration the safety of the counterparts on the other side of the border. And uh, there is a very delicate balance of crossing some lines that, you know, those contacts on the other side of the border will be considered as Zionist collaborators or something of that nature. So mostly the vast majority of the activities that are being done by Israel are not being published. But there are really a very impressive amount. Well, I just have to say I am constantly inspired by how much Israel does to save the lives of its ostensible enemies in Syria. Avital, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for your time. Now it's time for our closing segment, Good for the Jews, where each week I share one final thought about a recent development in the world and try to answer that age-old question. Is it good for the Jews? A different kind of summer camp. Good for the Jews? There's one in Washington State. Another is in Sacramento, California. There's a third in St. Louis, Missouri. Across the country, Jewish communities have partnered with immigrant aid societies to open summer camps for refugee children. It's a natural partnership. Thousands upon thousands of Jews are touched by their Jewish camp experience each summer. And Jewish tradition commands us to welcome the stranger in our midst. What better vehicle to welcome and to aid these newest residents of America than by offering them a summer camp experience? The optics might be a little strange as Jewish teens work as counselors for black and brown children with some girls wearing hijabs and other youngsters knowing very little English. But the effort is undoubtedly worth it. And summer camps like these, like summer camps in general, are undoubtedly good for the Jews. You can subscribe to AJC Passport on iTunes or on Stitcher. Follow us on SoundCloud or learn more at AJC.org passport. The views and opinions of our guests don't necessarily reflect the positions of AJC. We'd love to hear your views and opinions or your questions. You can reach us at passport at AJC.org. If you like this podcast, be sure to rate it and write a review to help more listeners find us. Thank you for listening. I'm your host, Sefi Kogan. 
This episode is brought to you by AJC, the American Jewish Committee. Our producer is Alex Zeldin. Our sound engineer is TK Broderick. Tune in next week for another episode of AJC Passport.